This is Paul Nobles from Eat Reform. I'm sitting here with a very small class of people and I am all alone today. Normally, Catherine Adams would be here. This is our fat loss chat. Typically, we're going to talk a little bit about training, a little bit about fat loss on most shows, but we tend to be a little bit more fat loss focused and I actually have a pretty good theme for you guys tonight. The people that are sitting here in these classes tend to be our um, lifetime or quick start members, but also uh, some of the coaches that actually are in gyms all around the world. So it's kind of an interesting way to have a conversation with those guys and talk about maybe some issues with their clients. And so actually one of the questions that I have directly deals with one of our coaching clients or our coaches clients that they asked in the certification course and so I wanted to cover that because I thought it was a pretty interesting topic. Uh, normally I do come up with some kind of something to talk about with our host one way or the other. Uh, since we don't have a host I thought I'd tell you guys a story about my first car. Um, when I first was of driving age I would drive my, my dad's car, which was a Thunderbird, not like the cool Thunderbirds, but more like the dorky thunder, Thunderbirds that were in the 80s. Um, the thing that I remember most about my dad's Thunderbird was being able to drive it one time, and I was supposed to stay in the uh, local area, which was um, Marrero, Louisiana at the time, and course I did not do that. I went uh, across the river and in New Orleans if you know now it's actually I think wider but uh, there was a bridge called the UEP Long Bridge and it was kind of a two-lane bridge in fact I remember my uncle at one point got into an accident and was leaning half off the bridge which if you were familiar with the old UE Long Bridge that would be pretty doggone scary. So my first time driving, uh, it, it really it does no justice to to it if you do, have you've never seen the UAP Long Bridge. But if you knew that the bridge was made for Model Ts, that should give you some idea of how narrow the lanes were. And so I'm with you know myself and and three gals. I was I was not really like the ladies' man at that point. I don't think I've ever actually been the ladies' man, um, but the three gals in my car were friends, you know, and um, I had no idea how to close the deal at that point. Um, and uh, so we were going to this kind of teenage dance club across the river. And, uh, you know, it was my first time really driving without the assistance of my dad. And so, uh, you know, I crossed the Yulong Bridge. Um, I was scared out of my mind the whole time, but I made it, and eventually I got my own car, which was a uh, Plymouth Duster, and it was actually my uncle's car. It was a bit tricked out, kind of had rims and stuff like that, but it was like the most dorky 1986 car ever, and uh, probably within maybe a month of having it, I went to, you know, gas up the car 
and uh, you know got the gas, left the gas station, and within probably three miles, maybe um, this, the car started sputtering, and I couldn't figure out why it would not move anymore. So we pushed it off to the side of the road, and eventually, what we figured out was that I put diesel in the tank, not paying attention. And, uh, you know, in case you don't know, uh, cars don't typically like that. One of the interesting things about that, well, actually, two of my uncles came over to see what the problem was with the car, and they couldn't figure it out. And then my Uncle Ronnie, um, <laughs> he goes, uh, he's like, you know, he starts to feel his fingers, and he's like, this isn't, this isn't disintegrating. And he's like, this is, stays on my hand. He's like, is it possible that this is diesel? And so we actually went back to the to the gas station, and I knew approximately where I was. And sure enough, it was um, at one of the tanks with diesel. I just wasn't paying attention. I was a teenager at the time, so I'm sure I had all kinds of stuff, including those three girls that I was actually secretly trying to get with, um, that I couldn't figure out a way to get that done. So that was occupying my mind, um, not what brand of gas I was putting in the car. Uh, eventually, though. You know, my disdain for the Plymouth Duster led me down a rabbit hole of a Volkswagen Bug, which I thought was infinitely cooler. And I do remember like three moments of really cool stuff. Actually, there's another one. Uh, it's sort of funny because one of my friends on, on Facebook, she's actually now a CrossFitter, and she's usually very interested in everything that I have to say as it relates to, um, you know, eating to perform, we went out on a date and it was one of the first times that I'd ever been out on a date on my new Volkswagen Bug, the, the, the car that, um, I had right after my duster. The funny thing about the duster is that it, you know, I ended up seeing it. I mean, I'm sure right now, the guy that we sold it to still has it in his driveway and he's still driving that damn thing, which is frustrating as hell, um, given who I ultimately became and I tend to like a decent value like that. But what was funny about um, Stacy is that, uh, you know, we went on this date. It was our, you know, first and only date. Um, you know, the, the Volkswagen was a, a manual and... Uh, I ended up stalling at one of the lights and I had to ask her to help me push the car into the local gas station so that that didn't really work out for me um, long term but it, it was kind of an interesting story and I, I remember you know it's, it's sort of funny the weird things that you remember about all these situations <coughs> because I, I remember listening to the you know Howard Jones song um, you know, coming on the radio in that car in the one day that I actually got to enjoy my car. Um, it had all kinds of engine problems, all kind of everything. And, and from that point on, I had nothing but car issues until I actually grew up, was able to start buying reliable cars, and then kind of go from there. And once again, I forgot to shut down Facebook. So we got the little beep. So the topic that I wanted to cover today, we, we talk a lot about 
you know, performance focused fat loss where the good majority of the time you are not dieting in that, you know, and if you listen to the last podcast, we talked about why the plan that, you know, most people focus on is the deficit, but they don't realize how much value the work has to it. And so if you show me somebody that diets well, I'll show you someone that's been overeating for a while or has put in a good amount of work and understands the value of not dieting most of the time. So kind of basic stuff, but actually kind of a kind of a big deal in the same way. And I would argue that, um, you know, most people actually don't struggle. You know, this is actually something that's been coming up on a lot of the podcasts recently. <coughs> but most people don't struggle with the deficit part or, or figuring out a way to lose weight. What they struggle with is normalizing. And because they never normalize, they're always kind of hitting those plateau levels and that's where you struggle, right? So, the, you know, for a lot of folks, if you were overeating or if you were eating with a plan where you were normal most of the time, you'd find that it's fairly easy to, um, you know, see some weight loss, see some fat. Weight loss, I mean, you know, do you need weight loss for fat loss? There would be a lot of people that would tell you, no, you do not. You could recomp. I'm going to tell you truthfully, yes, you probably do, you know, um, because, you know, the reality of the situation is that you're going to need some favorable math. It's probably going to be a little uncomfortable. And I think what happens with most people, because I'll hear a lot of people say to me, especially, um, in, in, in group coaching, you know, for Eat to Perform, where we work with clients in pods of threes, um, we have three coaches and then, you know, we have various different ways of communicating with clients. But one of the things that people will talk about a lot is that they used to eat, you know, I was talking to a client today who was normally eating 900 calories and really didn't have much problem doing so. She, you know, her... She was able to kind of control her hunger, hunger signaling. Now, obviously, that's a net negative for a lot of things. Um, you know, she talked a little bit about, you know, testosterone issues and stuff like that. And a lot of times, you know, you'll see people having issues with their hair, issues with their nails, where they, they struggle with all that kind of stuff. And so if those are things that, that you know, trouble you chronically you might want to consider whether or not you're chronically under eating because that's a that's a classic symptom of that. But it's really that acclimation period that makes a difference. And then, you know, when when people are sort of struggling, when somebody says, you know, um, I don't really like weighing myself, oftentimes it's really the expectation of that. You know, these are topics that we cover a lot. So if you listen to the podcast, you're going to hear those things often. So I'm not going to really go over those too much, but you know, certainly if you want to listen to virtually all of the other 50 podcasts at this point, we will have covered a lot of that stuff in depth. So when you do a performance-focused fat loss period, typically you're looking at eight weeks with probably four weeks of acclimation after that. And then you kind of rinse and repeat to get to where you are. 
And, you know, one of the interesting things about it, once again, you know, um, I've been talking about it ad nauseum, so I'm not going to go into it, but I'm currently doing performance-focused fat loss. And what I think is really interesting about it is that if you're not uncomfortable, like, for instance, I had somebody say to me, you know, I PR'd my deadlift and I'm doing performance-focused fat loss. I'd be real interested to see if they're actually losing weight and losing fat during their performance-focused fat loss. Because when you are able to, and I'm not saying that you, you couldn't on occasion, right? But if you're trying to see a result that shows up on the scale, shows up in the mirror, you're going to have to be a little bit of uncomfortable. And one of the things that we walk people through is how you kind of deal with those, you know, deal with that comfort. And, you know, for myself, I talk a lot about the fact that, you know, when I'm doing performance-focused fat loss, I typically skip my morning meal um, just because if I'm going to be hungry, I typically want to be hungry in the morning. And so, you know, if I eat around 1230 you know, and it might depend on your, if you're not used to that, you know, I might start at 9, 10 o'clock and then gradually move it out. You know, my wife, when she first started doing it um, during performance-focused fat loss periods, you know, she wasn't very comfortable. Um, now she's she's more comfortable close to 10 or 11 when she feels like doing that. But the, the good majority of the time, we actually don't do it because, you know, um, we want to make sure that we're fueled and ready to work out and you know as long as your weight stable and can add that extra meal in that's going to be a good thing as it relates to <coughs> building lean tissue over time the 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 other thing about dealing with the 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 comfort factor is a lot of times throughout the day I will have some energy dense stuff, you know, if you're not familiar with eat to perform and you think that sugar is like the end all be all, you know, negative, negative, negative thing, then, you know, I'm probably not speaking to you. But, you know, just know that you can eat whole foods and do eat to perform. I mean, eat to perform is mostly having a moderate amount of starches and um, you don't necessarily have to have sweets. But I will say that I typically like sweet things, you know. Now, you know, I'd say probably 25% of the time those sweet things are, are um, fruits, but, you know, there are times where, you know, I will, you know, resort to, you know, M&Ms or I'm just trying to think of, of what I have for dessert. So at nighttime sometimes, um, it really, you know, it sort of depends. Like those caramel apple pops, um, tend to be kind of a good thing, but when I'm looking for something sweet, <clears throat> normally I stay away from artificial sweeteners just because I eat enough calories and I don't have to worry about, you know, those types of things that often. But if I'm in performance-focused fat loss, what I'm ultimately trying to do is get the most protein in, most starches in, fiber, and then an adequate amount of fats, you know, so I'm not too uncomfortable. And, you know, right now, on workout days, my calories are around 2,200, and that's that's on a cut. You know, normally I eat around 3,000 calories. 
Um, I'm not as active as I think some people think that you need to be to eat 3,000 calories, though. Um, and I only weigh 180 pounds, so I'm clearly not, you know, um, I don't have a lot of stored bodily fat, I guess is probably the best way to say that. But if I'm doing a performance-focused fat loss, you know, I will have a little bit more of things with artificial sweeteners. I did just end up buying some BCAs. I haven't used BCAs in a while, but um, Eat Perform Coach Sarah Kumar, she's been using them. She likes them, and so I, I wanted to try the watermelon. Kind of a nice way to get, you know, a little bit of a sweet, you know, thing. Um, you normally I like to have something a little sweet after, especially after my evening meals. But sometimes during the day, if I were to have you know something to drink that would be a little sweet, similar to the BCAs, that would be a positive. So, like I said, normally I wouldn't be all that concerned about you know having you know. Gosh, why am why am I drawing a blank on the things that I eat for? dessert but uh you know something like m&ms i'll have you know oreos on occasion um nothing you know too extreme just really kind of a moderate type thing but you know during performance focused fat loss when i'm trying to keep calories down i really want my calories to be much more in terms of whole food so the satiety um will be kind of better in those scenarios and then um, I can kind of use the the BCAAs as a way to kind of have a little bit of a sweet treat or the other thing is um, Sour Patch Kids gum that's something that I also like to have during a, a performance focused fat loss um, yeah Kathleen is reminding me that I had a cinnamon roll um, last Friday um, actually there's a local uh, cupcake well, actually, you know, it, they're called cupcakes, which is like the worst branding type thing ever. But they were one of the people that did win that cupcake, you know, competition. Uh, and so um, they tend to be pretty good cupcakes. But actually, I like their cinnamon roll pull-aparts. And so I'll have those. Oh, the other, I know the, the other thing that I've been having a little bit lately they're like 400 calories they're like these little bunt cakes from uh, nothing but cake and those are really good um, and they, they have like these little little mini bunt cakes and those are like 180 calories and I think I think the key you know a lot of times when when I talk to people that have like an aversion to sugar really what I think most people find when they start doing eat performance, when they're eating an adequate amount of food for what they do, a lot of those cravings start to go away a little bit because they're full, you know? Um, it's sort of funny when you're eating an adequate amount of food the majority of the time, how you can actually eat in moderation if you're constantly, you know, trying to lose weight, constantly you're on a diet, or even if you're intuitively eating, you know, as an example, you know, something like paleo where you say, well, I'm not on a diet. Calories always matter, even if you're not on a diet. And, you know, if you're avoiding energy dense foods, you're doing so because of calories, not because of that the whole foods have some magical, you know, um, 
magical properties. I mean, they do have you know at least some magical properties, but at times those magical properties would be a net negative. I can tell you right now, you know, uh, you know, I am a little sick. And, you know, you can sort of hear that I'm a little more nasally than normal, but when you are you know in a, a cutting phase like i am right now whole foods are going to be more favorable but there are times where whole foods works against you what happens for a lot of people that start eat to perform what what they'll end up doing is you know they kind of come from a mostly whole foods background where you know they're mostly satiated they're not hungry but you know, they're sort of stuck, plateaued. And then when they start to add up their calories, they realize that they're drastically under eating because they're constantly fooling with their hunger signaling. And so we try to reintroduce some foods that have a little bit more energy density because, you know, I mean, I always use this one. It's actually sort of a meme at this point. But, um, you know, there's only so much chicken and kale you can eat throughout the day. The day and, and you're going to ultimately get real real tired of that i will say for myself right now you know uh earlier today i ended up having a couple lobster tails and a, and a baked potato perfectly fit within you know the way that i eat earlier today i ended up having full fat yogurt um with some protein threw in a couple of those little girl scout uh cookie lemonade so even even in a um you know just for a little flavor like two of them but uh you know, even even in a deficit or a cut, I try to keep, you know, as I try to keep foods I like in the mix. And I think from a mental standpoint, that helps a lot. So what this coach asked in the certification course was they have an athlete with a fair amount of fat to use. And they were asking us about dieting cycles. And typically, like we say, you know, usually <coughs> a lot of folks are going to get to a point at about a month where it starts to get a little difficult. And then, you know, they're going to gut it out for the next four weeks and then they acclimate, you know, four weeks after that. So it ends up being almost a 12-week cycle, but the last four weeks are really not in a deficit. In the case of somebody though that has a fair amount of fat to use, there if you look at the guidelines of what we teach people, what we're really ultimately trying to do is keep them focused on the eyes of the prize and when you are introducing an element of stress similar to what a deficit way of eating does, you're opening up a whole can of worms. It might mess with your sleep. It might mess with you know your immune system, as evidenced by the fact that my wife, being sick, ended up getting me sick. Um, job stress. Lots of different things can can come up. I know for myself, you know, being sick, I haven't been able to work out as often. I've been able to still see a result, but when I when when I'm in these scenarios. I get very concerned about, you know, missing out on that volume that's really going to keep my muscles hydrated and ultimately keep 
you know, some of the, the tissue that, that could go away. I mean, one of the biggest problems that a lot of people have when they're, you know, dieting or in a extreme deficits is they end up losing muscle. That the way that you, you avoid that is by keeping some level of resistance training in the mix and then maybe some level of low intensity work like longer walks, hikes, things of that nature. So what they were talking about though is, hey, I have a client, it's actually eight weeks and they're losing about a pound and a half a week. What would you suggest? What I would suggest in that scenario is if the client is seeing success and they're not super uncomfortable, have them keep going. And what you're really trying to do is come up with, you know, a scenario where, you know, it fits for each individual. I'll give you an example. Our normal eight-week period, you know, are there people that could, you know, let's say that your goal was to lose 10 pounds and then you want to have like a bounce back of three to four pounds, but you're able to accomplish that within six weeks. Well, if you've reached your goal, there's no reason to continue going lower. So it's probably best to reverse out, use your bounce back. And and the bounce back is actually something that, that we talk about a lot. You know, I don't, I'm not going to go into it in a major way because we talk about it a lot. Um, that's the big thing that we teach that almost no one else teaches is that when you start to reintroduce food, you have to expect your weight to start to go up a little bit, right? Because, you know, to a, to a certain extent, when you are in a deficit period or you're doing some level of carb cycling or something like that, you're essentially getting rid of water. What, what I really like about what we've been able to talk to people about is... Over the course, you know, if you're not familiar with my story, you know, I had kind of this 10-year period where I tried virtually every kind of dieting to to get lean. And it was always kind of like this, you know, binge and bust cycle. And the majority of it coming from being, being a little bit too extreme. But at the same time, you know, volume and work capacity was not always a huge priority. But what is interesting about what we teach clients is all the things that I learned over the course of those 10 years, I still use to this day. You know, some level of intermittent fasting, like I just explained, you know, um, you know, delaying breakfast actually works for me in a deficit. Um, days that I'm resting, there's no need for a lot of carbohydrates, so those days I end up having lower carbs, not low carb. And there is a significant difference because, you know, most people hear low carb and they're like, oh, am I trying to get to ketosis? You know, am I below 50 grams? The problem with, like, those kinds of extremes is that if you go below 50 grams of carbohydrates, in theory, it could work, right? You know, um, and in theory, it's going to be somewhat favorable as it relates to fat loss. The problem is, is as you introduce your carbohydrates in again, your 
really going to only get to about 60 to 70 percent and your workouts are going to suffer as a result but the main point being that you don't have to do it you could actually take a more reasonable approach you see a lot of people that do like these really super low carb way of, of eating and then they have like these monstrous refeed days where they're like, you know, got lists of foods out and stuff like this and all these foods that they're going to eat on that one day. And then they, you know, they, you know, get diarrhea-like symptoms. I mean, I'm talking a little bit about what my, you know, experiences used to be like, but these are experiences that other people um, have also had. But when you see a client and they're eating a moderate amount of carbohydrates, they're keeping in enough fats and they're they're eating at a deficit and they're seeing a result you know even in the case of eat form we do often suggest to people to have what we call a wave plus day where that person is going to upregulate by eating a little bit more at least one day a week Usually, usually in a performance-focused fat loss, you would probably want to keep it to one day a week. Some people have actually seen success going a little bit longer. Um, I'm actually probably going to do, well, we'll see. Um, I, I don't think I'm going to be as aggressive on my Wave Plus day this week just because I've been sick. And what I, I normally put it around my, um, you know, it's, it's a CrossFit Open this time of year. So normally I put my Wave Plus day around the CrossFit Open. Tomorrow, I will probably do date night with my wife. We typically go to um, this local, uh, it's a very nice pizza place. Um, we actually like it because the salads are really good, but they also have really good pizza. It's called Black Sheep Cold Pizza. Um, one of the things that's really cool about that place is that we walk in and they immediately know our order. And um, they know everything about what we do. You know, I will typically have a Coke with my pizza when that comes out after the salads and stuff like that. And they don't even ask. They just bring it, you know. Um, but normally, if I was doing something like a CrossFit workout, um, I would probably have more carbohydrates earlier in the day on my Weight Plus day. For the CrossFit Open this year, you know, I'm, I'm not... I'm not really training for it. I'm not trying to be, you know, super good at that. I will actually, as I come out of performance focused fat loss, I'll start gearing up my training for the Granite Games in the fall. And that'll give me about three months to kind of get some high intensity work, you know, a little bit more strength training. Still trying to, to lift 500 pounds, uh, deadlift and a, and a meet at 165 pounds. So those things are all kind of um, play a part. But getting back to when a client is seeing a success, and right now, as an example, I'm sort of in a groove, right? And I'll probably, you know, normally I, I like to go down about a pound. You know, there's potential that I could go one 1.5 to 2 pounds this week. So that could tell me a few things. Maybe I'm being a little too aggressive. I think what it most likely is, is that when you start kind of having a reduced volume, that that hydrating of the muscle doesn't happen as effectively. And so I think what will happen next week is I'm able to add in a little bit more intensity with my workouts. 
that, you know, I'll kind of still be on that one pound track. But let's say that, you know, I land at 177 pounds and I'm 13%. And I have no real signs that I shouldn't stop. There's no real reason why, as long as all signs are favorable, that I can't continue on. Now, I will tell you that I've been through a number of these, <coughs> and right around eight weeks, it starts to get real hard. But it starts to get real hard for most people at various times. I mean, it's not easy right now, right? But... If you're still seeing a result, you know, you're probably better off sticking with it than stopping it. And I would say for the majority of people, they see the initial water loss. Then, you know, and like for me, the water loss was about three pounds. And then, you know, I'm a little over two pounds more since then. It's only been two weeks. So that's about right. Right. Um, but. If I'm seeing good results, if my workouts aren't tanking, and you know, when you do the math, you know, what's 1.7 times three? It's you know, it's five five pounds. You know, I could potentially, if I could keep the volume up, I could potentially get to 10%, right? And so if it's if I'm not too uncomfortable and you know I can get down to 172. I'll do it, you know, um, but, you know, I think you have to be real honest with yourself. Like as an example, you know, I would probably be willing to go to about 2000 calories, but I don't think I'd be willing to go too much lower than that. Just because at that point at, at, at 2000 calories, you're not going to be working out very well. And certainly, um, some of my goals as it relates to strength would probably take a little bit of a backseat as I got closer to 170 pounds, which is fine. You know, I can always kind of pick that up later on um, because, you know, your goals change at different times. And so you have to kind of, you know, prioritize what is really important. And I know for a lot of people, you know, fat loss is always like the thing that they would really like to do. But, you know, if, for instance, you know, just that using extreme right now, I'm at about 2200. If I had to go to 1500, not only would that compromise um, my workouts, I could potentially be compromising my muscle, um, but it would also uh, the reacclimation period would be much longer. So for for me to normally have, you know, especially going into the summer. Well, I'll be doing tra training for the Grand Games. I'll definitely be eating 3,000 to 3,500 calories a day. Well, you know, depending on how quickly I adjust, it could take me as long as, you know, 12 to 15 weeks to reacclimate to get back to, to 3,000 and to really get back to normal. Now, you know, I would say for myself, it probably wouldn't take as long. Just remember, the the more you have to reduce food, the longer it takes to reacclimate. So you're always kind of playing this game where 
you know, like the, the person saying, you know, their client have a lot of fat to, fat to use. They're getting 1.5. They're not having to, you know, go to crazy extremes. They're not struggling with sleep. They're not struggling with stress. So, you know, whenever you've got all the streams going in the right direction, keep going, you know. Um, and I know that that's contrary to what, you know, the book says um, for the WAVE method. But what you have to realize is that everything that we're writing really is a guideline and is irrespective of your personal situation. You know, what we're ultimately trying to do is show you guys some level of meal planning, some level of, of you know, nutrient priorities. And once you have a lot of these factors under control, you know, essentially you've been able to kind of compartmentalize things to a point where you can now take one piece out and then kind of, you know, manipulate it a little bit to see if you can get a better result. The problem with the way that most people do it is they're you know they don't sleep very well, um, they're stressed out at their job, they're struggling to get in workouts, they eat conveniently all the time. You know all these things are kind of going on, and so rather than having like you know one thing to focus on, they've got ten things to focus on, and that's why they struggle. And so the more of those pieces that you can nail down, the better. The one thing that I would say, though, is for athletes with a fair amount of fat to use, especially if you're talking to them as clients, you'll often have to talk them out of the extremes because they would like to be done with all this fat, you know, as quickly as possible. The problem with that, though, is they're willing to do some things that ultimately I don't think is going to net out in fat loss over time, right? Um, because, you know, even in the case of, you know, you're what one thing that a lot of people aren't aware of is that your fat layer actually acts as a way of protecting your muscle over time. But there is a point where, you know, you're going to compromise some level of muscle as you start to decrease food, as you start to get, you know, uncomfortable. One of the things that, you know, I talked a little bit about earlier when we were talking in group coaching was how I try to manage my level of activity. And one of the things that I do with my level of activity, especially in a deficit, is I try to have my activity in the morning mostly because I know that by the end of the day, my energy levels might not be high. And let's say that it is kind of a rest day and maybe I'm doing a low activity like walking or, or something like that. I'm more inclined to be motivated to do that, you know, caffeinated, you know, in the morning um, when I have less distractions. In the evening, you know, my daughters might want to go to their boyfriend's house and then I've got to drive them to 30 miles from here, um, which I have to say, if if you're a dad and you're listening to this, we deserve awards for that shit because I don't know about you guys, 
but I want to kill all these little dudes. You know, they just drive me nuts. Um, you know, they say stupid things. They they do stupid things. And then, you know, they're supposed to be entrusted with your daughter. I had sort of a funny incident. Um, this, you know, special friend of my, my daughter, he lives like 30 miles from my house. And, you know, I explained to my daughter that if his mother's not at the house, you know, I'm not dropping her off. And sure enough, you know, mom's not there. And so they're, they're trying to talk me into, uh, you know, leaving her, you know, and then, you know, the mom would talk to me on the phone. I'm like, no, trust me. I was a teenage boy, you know, even though I had, even though it's well established, I had no game as a teenage boy. I don't know that this kid doesn't have game as a teenage boy. So the, and I absolutely know what my intentions were if I did have game. So I always keep that in mind, but ultimately I ended up picking up the kid, dropping them off at the mall. You know, not too much bad stuff can happen at the mall, but, but who knows, man. It's always scary being a dad in that scenario. But, you know, the, um, yeah, it's, it's just kind of one of those things. I have two daughters. I don't know if most people know that. Both of them are teenagers, and so they, they keep my life interesting. But, you know, getting back to the main point, the main point being that as the day goes by, things come up, you know, and if you can control in the morning time, you know, even if like you have to wake up a half hour early to walk around the block, you know, having that activity in the bank typically is pretty helpful and it's going to be favorable for your goals over time. Assuming that, you know, I mean, this is, of course, assuming this is the one time we do devote to fat loss. So I am going to talk about strategies related to fat loss. But if you listen to the other you know, three podcasts out of the week, you know, really talking more about expanding work capacity, eating an adequate amount of food. So I really don't want to have to apologize every single podcast for having a discussion about fat loss. But I do think that these are important discussions as it relates to the end game of Eat to Perform. Because if if I started off Eat to Perform and, you know, I know initially the fear is, oh my goodness, you know, if I eat anything more than I'm normally eating, you know, I'm going to gain weight. Well, obviously we've been able to prove. We actually had an interesting uh, person like that on the call today, in fact. And previous to Eat Reform, she was eating 1,500 calories and now she's eating 2,500 calories, which is basically a net of about 30,000 calories. And so she should have gained roughly 10 pounds, you know, actually about eight and a half. She did actually gain three pounds. And we talked a little bit about how she could, you know, maybe, um, you know, kind of get that to a point where um, she wouldn't need to be up those three pounds. But the, the most interesting point is the five and a half pounds difference. And what she talked about was her children saying to her that she's just way more active and like her sons mentioned you know that you used to not wrestle with us and now you wrestle with us and you know what I said to her I said if I told you 
that your kids were going to say that to you and it would cost you three pounds, would you do it? And if you're listening to this, you should want to do that. And, uh, you know, we definitely had a discussion with her about how to manage that a little bit and how she could kind of rein that in a little bit more. And that's one of the, the nice things about, you know, quick starts similar to these, but also the, the group coaching is that we can have these conversations with people, you know, in the in the forums and stuff like that. Those are all great. And, and if, you know, you've got it mostly figured out, then, you know, you'll be fine. But I think for, you know, I'm looking at the list of people right now and, and of the five people on the call, three of them are, are group coaching clients. And so they have the ability to talk to us virtually every single day. And they're still really interested. I think one of the things about Eat Reform, I really kind of a lot of the scientific data that we put in front of people, you know, it all seems kind of boring. You know, when you you listen to it on NPR and you you hear about a double, you know, double blind rat study and stuff like that. It's hard to get super excited about it. But between myself, between Dr. Brad, Dr. Mike, you know, we were all able to kind of talk to you guys and talk like a regular human being rather than some kind of robot, you know, double blind rat study, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, that, that you know, the world has way too much of that nonsense right now. And so when you see somebody, you know, taking time out of the, their day to do these these classes, what I think it really shows is that once you start to seek out just that tiny little bit of information, then you take that information and you take it to the gym or you take it to the kitchen and you start experimenting with it and you see that that works. And then you want more. You, know, you want more science. You want more understanding of how you really work. You know, we've got actually some really cool, um, you know, podcasts coming up with some some PhDs that Mike and Brad have corralled for you guys that is going to be related to sleep. Um, there was actually a recent study done on metabolic flexibility. Metabolic flexibility is is where you're using carbohydrates around your workouts um, and then, you know, fats on more of the days you're at rest. That's kind of the basis for a lot of what we do at Eat to Perform. So there was some really cool studies that came out recently, and Mike's going to have um, the author of those studies, uh, you know, on. Mike's thesis was on metabolic flexibility, and obviously that's what the manual for fat loss is. So I think that's going to be really cool. Uh, there's the the menopause doctor, which is going to be really cool. That's a question that the that's a question that comes up a lot. Um, Sleep studies, um, those things are always helpful for people. I think what happens for the way that the good majority of people teach, well, the good majority of people teach weight loss, whereas we teach fat loss. And when we're looking at fat loss, you're really looking at the human body as a whole and trying to manage various things and and really to a certain extent in a, in a deficit period like i said earlier you're kind of managing the uncomfort but what's interesting about about that is that once you're out of kind of the uncomfortable stage actually you know i i mentioned it in the lifetime group so this can be a little redundant for some of those guys but there there was this story on the internet a while back where it talked about the differences between dogs and cats. 
And, you know, the gist of the story is that everything in, you know, a dog's life is super exciting and fun all the time. Um, not my dog. My dog's a little bit more of a cat, but, you know, that doesn't really work with the story here. So, but in general, dogs tend to be pretty excited. And actually, my dog is pretty excited at certain times. Cats, completely different, you know. And the way that the story went is the cat's telling the story um, about how the dog is in cahoots with the owner and it's the 357th day of captivity. That's sort of what what either form is like. The good majority of the time, you're like a dog. You're happy. You're working out and you're expanding work capacity. But what is sort of interesting about the dog period of eat to perform where you're kind of excited, you're eating an adequate amount of food, and you're doing cool stuff in the gym, you still are pushing it. You're still uncomfortable, but you're uncomfortable in the opposite way. And then, of course, there's the, the cat period, which is performance-focused fat loss. You know, most of the people that are, are listening here are quick starter lifetime clients. And people will often ask, well, why should I sign up with Quick Start or Lifetime? <clears throat> Couldn't I just see if I could do things in the forums? For most people, like I said, it's not the period of a deficit that they struggle with. It's the reacclimation period. And especially when you're going you know, if you're coming from an underfed background or really even an overfed background, you know, knowing how to kind of set things up and then having more coddling in that process, you know, tends to be favorable as it relates to success, you know. And so that's why we have lifetime and group coaching. We do have a little bit of an issue with group coaching right now. Um, we've decided to kind of cap it at 500. I think we're at something like 487. Um, and we we do have some people come and go, but not, not that many people leave group coaching um, on a monthly basis. We might only see, you know, 30 people turn over on a month. So, you know, group coaching is going to get very, very sought after here real soon. And if you're already in it, then awesome you know uh you know you're you're guaranteed your spot but going forward we really want to be able to maintain a high level of attention for the clients and and we don't necessarily want to add another pod right now we have basically three pods of teams that basically go into intake calls um and then usually there's two people on a call and, uh, you know, there's various, you know, journal reviews and kind of talking through to clients throughout the month. It's not really something that is a huge moneymaker for Eat to Perform. It's really just kind of something that we feel is important as, you know, you know, certain clients just have more acute needs. And so group coaching is sort of good for those people so you know if that's something that is of interest to you like i said we're sort of going to be out of control 
the, um, or it's going to be out of our control here real soon. You know, we may end up adding a fourth pod at some future point, but frankly, I don't think we're going to do it. It's just a lot of work, you know, um, to make sure that the quality control is good and that the clients are getting what they need. And right now we have a real good group with Dr. Brad, you know, on the lead on one pod and then, then April Blackford is a lead on another pod. And um, within those pods, you know, Catherine Adams, uh, Sarah Kumar, Kim Christensen, Gina Patterson, um, uh, Nicole Garrett, uh, Sarah Willen, all the, you know, and then of course, Dr. Brad, um, and then Susie Glassman. All these names are probably really familiar to you guys because you're seeing them in the forums and stuff like this, but they also do a really good job for all those group coaching clients and, and you know, um, I mean, I'm not saying that group coaching is without criticism, but it is almost without criticism because, you know, I think we were able to maintain kind of this high level of attention. Now, one thing is cool about, uh, uh, about group coaching with Eat to Perform is we are sort of, the way that the good majority of places work is they almost need you to be dependent on failing, right? And with Eat to Perform, especially in our group coaching, we kind of put it in a way where success is the ultimate goal. And so we will see people, like I said, you know, there's usually 20 to 30 people each month that turn over. A lot of those people graduate. They sort of figure it out. And, and you know, if you actually, if you look at virtually every coach that is teaching people, they were people that figured it out. They were very good at it. And uh, they also work well with, with, with people. And so they became coaches for each form. So, um, but, you know, it, it's really hard to expand that piece of the business just because of the level of work and attention that is required. So if that's something that you think you might need, um, I would definitely consider it sooner rather than later. Um, and unfortunately, if you're listening to this uh, six months from now, too bad. <laughs> um, it's probably going to be really tough to get in at that point. Um, but we'll, you know, We'll definitely have a wait list and we'll try to do everything we can. And maybe at that point we will have another pod um, to kind of help everyone. We do have a lot of people actually that are pretty proficient. And a lot of the coaches that, you know, are kind of the assistant type folks in the pods will probably move on to primary people over time if demand kind of requires that. So... I appreciate everybody being here. I guess the, the overriding message that I really want to leave with everyone is no matter what you're doing, whether it, whether it's lifting weights or in this case we're talking about fat loss, in this case we're specifically talking about a client that's losing 1.5 pounds a week, you know what? As long as you're doing it, as long as it's not uncomfortable, as long as your stress level is not super high, as long as your workouts aren't in the tank constantly, as long as you're sleeping okay, Stick with it. Trust me. That's the best way to do it. You know, 
it's really hard to find those grooves where everything is sort of working in your favor. So when you get one, ride that wave as long as you can. And that's a little bit, in case you hadn't figured it out, of what why we call it the wave method. Um, there's a few other factors, but that was one of the things. And so don't get caught up in the eight-week cycle necessarily. If that fits what your goals are, then great. But if you're eight weeks in and you're still losing weight and it's not uncomfortable and all the factors are going well for you, there's really no reason you can't extend it a little bit longer. But usually when you start to plateau and you're doing all the things that you normally are able to do to kind of get the things moving, you know, you have your weight plus day and then you know your weight goes up and then it comes down a little bit. Um, but if you start to kind of plateau at that number, well, then it's time to just reacclimate and then, you know, take another three to six month kind of depends on, you know, who you are as an athlete and what your, you know, timeline and goals are. But that's really something that you want to kind of keep in mind, you know, and like I said, it also worked for weight training. You know, there's times where, you know, I'm training my deadlift or I'm training my bench press. My bench press feels really good for eight weeks, but I need to deload after four weeks for deadlift. Bench press, I keep going. Deadlift, I deload. So whenever you get you get that good groove, stick with it. Trust me, it pays off in the end. I appreciate everybody being here. We didn't really have a lot of questions. I was able to sort of ramble on, but I hopefully, hopefully people got a lot out of this. I think it was kind of an interesting um you know, topic to cover because I think that sometimes people feel constricted by the time frame and they don't necessarily need to be. So appreciate everybody being here and listening and I hope everyone enjoys this episode. Talk to you later.